You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we are grateful that you have brought us together on this Lord's Day, and I'm thankful, Lord, for the folks who are here this morning. I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to your word and and to your spirit, and I pray that you will help me as I teach to be faithful to what it is you would have me to say, and I pray that you open up the ears of the hearts of those who are here to listen, and we give it to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I am going to leave time for Q&A today. I am. I promise. So I'm going to talk for about 25-ish minutes, and then we'll, we'll see where things go, all right? Um, and we, because... This is our last Sunday in this series, uh, the Ten Commandments, and we'll cover roughly eight-ish of them, and I figure that's, you know, 80% is not a bad success rate. Um, But uh, we've covered an enormous amount of ground, I think, over the last several weeks, Um, and and I'll, I'll rehearse some of this, particularly as it pertains to the function of the commandments within sort of a Christian shape of existence. Um, but we've covered a lot of ground. You know, our first several week, weeks together, we, we focused on what we call the first table of the law, um, which is, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. That's, that's the foundation upon which the whole of, of, um, of the law is built. Namely, um, we recognize that God and God alone um, is the object of our affection, desire, our hope, and our faith. This is one of the great lines from Martin Luther that defines both um, an idol and God in the same way. Um, An idol and God are both defined as that which we put our faith and our hope in. Um, And so we recognize that that particular challenge of ordering our lives um, in light of you shall have no other gods besides me, before me, in front of me, along with me. I mean, that, that particular phrase, if you can dig deep in your memory, um, is as, as simple a statement as no other gods besides me. It's actually grammatically kind of challenging when you get in there. So that beside me has a whole sort of plethora of, uh, of ways in which one w- might understand that term. And I think all of them are legitimate and mutually influencing one another. Beside, along, above, below. And so we, we, we focused on that particular facet of the law in our first few weeks together because without that, everything else falls apart. Um, we, we tend, especially in our current moment, well, I don't know if it's our current moment, but there's a tendency that we have within the human heart to bifurcate things. So, for example, I, I'll do the love of God thing, but when I move to the love of neighbor, that's not really my forte. Or I'm all for the brotherly love of humanity sort of thing, the second table, but I'm not all that sort of interested in complete loyalty to the Lord and the Lord alone. So this is where the law lets us know these two are necessarily related one to the other. Uh, Jesus pressed hard on this exposed nerve, right? Um, Pharisees to Jesus trying to trip him up. What's the most important commandment? Jesus answers just like any good Jew would have answered in the first century or of any time. But with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. You shall love him with all your heart and all your soul very, very much. And so that was uh, Jesus answered, You shall love the Lord your God. And then Jesus says, And the second is like unto it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as you've heard me say, probably ad nauseum now, they didn't ask Jesus about the second one. 
The, 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 the Pharisees asked about the first, uh, uh, what's the most important. But Jesus felt the pressure and the necessity to say, but by the way, your question's not a sufficient question. Um, the, the question's necessary. We need to know about loving the Lord our God. But for a full-orbed answer of the question that you're putting to, to me, I also need to provide for you more than what you ask. Namely, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. So we see how the first and the second table of the law, both the vertical and the horizontal, meet at an axis where both are necessary the one, one to the other. And so we talked, um, and, you know, when we moved toward love your neighbor about... Um, uh, children, honor your father and your mother. I mean, this is like, it's the first commandment upon which really societal origins and societal cohesion is built within the community of faith. I mean, so, you know, all the kids in here, got my own in here today, listen up to that. Um, so this is important. And then you move to um, uh, the other areas as well. So we talked, I think maybe, oh, now my, my time frame is, I'm losing it, but we talked uh, three or four or five weeks ago um, about the issue of, of life, thou shalt not kill, and even gave a kind of cursory discussion in here about the issue of, of abortion, which, oh, wow, here we are now. Um, that's, that's been a sort of radical moment within our own, within our own sort of civic space as, as this has become, I don't know if you know it or not, but that's a hot topic publicly right now. Um, so we talked about the fact that the command speaks to life in life, in personhood, being under the providence of God from uh, womb uh, to tomb. That's, that's God's providence. Um, and so we see uh, the, the commandment speaking to that in our world. Then we move, we move to another happy Thanksgiving topic, um, to human sexuality. The week after that, you shall not commit adultery. And again, the big open um, welcome mat to human sexuality in the Bible, from really from Genesis to the end, is that God designed sex within the complementary relationship of male and female, and he, and he opens the door to that as his gift to humanity for its procreation, its preservation, and the preservation of the marital union between man and woman. That's the big welcome at, yes, this is the pasture that God wants us to walk in. Of course, we know that that also comes with prohibitions. And the prohibitions are there to say that sexuality outside of male-female complementarity in marriage is outside the orbit of God's instruction. Um, and of course, you know, same-sex matters are, are hot in our, in our culture right now. These are challenging issues, both pastorally. They're challenging issues when it comes to our families and how we relate to our families. These are, these are not easy matters. In fact, that might be the Lord calling right now to talk to us about it. Um, so the, these are challenging matters that we have before us as we live life together. It's challenging matters in, in, the, in the denomination in which our church resides because, of course, it has changed its official teaching on same-sex and marriage. So these are, these are live and hot topics that live right on the front doorstep of our church. They live on the front doorstep of our families, the way in which we... <laughs> um, so that, that's, where, that's, that's the moment in which, which we're in. So we talked about that, and I want to create some space for you to ask any questions that you might want to ask about that at, at the end. Um, today, um, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, the gospel again in terms of the way in which we understand um, the gospel from the standpoint of adoption. This is another 
important metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses. We, we are adopted. Paul loves to talk about that in the book of Romans. And what does adoption entail? Adoption entails two things that are not mutually exclusive, the one to the other. Adoption entails something, I know we've got a lot of lawyer types in the room, something forensic. In other words, there's something declarative when someone is adopted. I can remember I took a, a Bible class years ago, and there were a lot of students in the class. I mean, it might have been sort of 150, 200 students. And the professor asked the, the, everyone in the room, how many of you in here are adopted? He was playing with us. Um, and there were a few hands that went up, here, here, here. And, and then he read Romans, right? And, and then he said, let me, let me ask you the question again. How many of you in here are adopted? And then, of course, the hands went up all over the room. Because what does adoption entail? Adoption entails the declaration on you of something that you were not by nature. You're not by nature, law, or right in that family. You were born outside of that family. But a family that's external to you has declared you are now within our family. That's a de declaration that comes from outside of that, that person, that child, um, to declare them to be something that they were not. And we affirm that. That's, that's the good old-fashioned language in our tradition of justification by faith alone. You are justified. You're declared to be a child, a son, a daughter of the living God when you have no natural rights to that claim. It's remarkable. And it should take our breath away every time we think about it. Your salvation and your security before the King Eternal, your entry point into the very life of God is not something yours by right, or something of yours by your own self-determination. It is pure gift from God. And the second element, though, of, of adoption is also, and this is not to be opposed to the forensic, it's the transformative. And now once a child is sort of brought in and declared to be something, there's then, again, this transformation of that child to actually now be a part of that familial unit and to carry on that familial name. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable feature. So you have both the declarative and you have the transformative at work in this, in this theology of adoption so that at the end of the day, a Christian that's been claimed by the work of Christ says repeatedly, and has to kind of lean into this by God's grace repeatedly, I am not my own. I mean, that, that's like the, that's the t-shirt that I think the Apostle Paul would sell if he was trying to sell his wares as he went along doing his apostolic thing around Asia Minor. I've got t-shirts for you all. Here's my catchphrase for you. We are not our own. We're not fundamentally identified by self-determination and actualization. Who I am is I'm Christ's. I've been adopted by Him and called by God's grace to live into the fullness of what Christ's Lordship and His gift of salvation is in my existence. And that's where we kind of moved, and this is back to week one, to this understanding that the Christian life is a life of repentance. We talk about that around here at the Advent all the time. It's a life of repentance. It's not one of those things where you went to Christian camp I hope this doesn't press a raw nerve, but you went to Christian camp when you were 15 or 16 and you threw some stick on the fire and, and you repented when you were 15 or 16 and you got that thing out of the way like that. We, we did that. Repentance is an actual mode of being for the Christian. 
And we talk about that around here a lot. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of turning away from the self to the claims of Christ and his gift of the gospel and his claims for us to live into a life under his lordship. That's, that's a constant mode of being. And we try to put some flesh on that in reformational terms because the reformational terms of that life of repentance doesn't leave it in the abstract. It gives you something concrete, namely mortification and vivification. Big words this morning, I know. But mortification, putting to death, vivification, being made alive. That's the constant dynamic of our lives before the Lord until you breathe your last. We're putting to death and we're being made alive again and again and again. That's the beauty of this this life in the spirit before the living God in Jesus Christ. So uh, that's where the Ten Commandments play their role. They they don't leave um, this life of mortification and vivification in the abstract. Just kind of go and figure it out on your own. It leaves it in the realm of the Holy Spirit linked to the written word of God. And let me just say something here that I think is, I, I, I joke about some theological things that I could happily change my mind if my life were on the line. You know, like I've got some strong opinions on things, but like if I'm facing the guillotine over some of my theological opinions, I'd be like, you know what? I'll change my mind on that one. Um, th- this is one I feel, feel pretty strongly about because it's rooted in the word. And, and, and I want you to sort of take this and, and, and think through it. There is no operation of the Holy Spirit that functions apart from the clarity of God's Word as well. Luther, the Reformation tradition, the tradition that we claim around here, would affirm wholeheartedly, you do not get the Spirit of God in operation apart from the Word of God. And when the Spirit of God seems to be operating in ways that are contrary to the givenness and the clarity of His Word, you can be assured that is a strange Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy, and think about the Trinitarian implications of that. The Spirit and the Word linked to the Son always operate with the singleness of will and obedience. There's no separate nature at work. It's, in other words, it's a, it's a theological impossibility for the Word and the Spirit to be at odds with one another in terms of the singleness of operations that God does in the singularity of His being through the threefold person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So these, these, these are live, hot issues that are sitting on the church, that are sitting, again, in our family rooms as well. All right, And this is where it comes to um, a, a matter of sort of Christian ethics. Um, and how Christian ethics draws on a wide range of resources. Um, to, to think through the ways in which the whole of the Christian faith um, is meant to be given to us, both in Scripture and the tradition, to shape the ways in which we view the world around us, knowing that if left to our own instincts, we will be governed by the dominant systems of the world today. It's amazing to me, and I've thought a lot about this recently, it's amazing to me that we often think that our moment is special. You know, like, we're, we're, this, this is really special, what we're in right now. And it seems to be like, oh my goodness, same, same tune, maybe different chorus, but we, we've been here before. And that is recognizing, Jesus says it all through the Gospel of John, that the world 
and its governing system is at enmity with Christ. They, they, they do not sit happily together at family reunions. And that's the challenge that I think Christians are called to regularly. And what's the challenge? To be in the world, this is biblical language, but not of the world. That's the, that's the tension that you and I live into. And you can see how everything that I'm trying to say this morning is symphonic. It all relates to, each, to, to itself. Mortification and vivification. The reality of the cosmos set off over against the world. The reality of our own instincts to be shaped by our surrounding culture, if not in that spiritual and gracious dynamic of mortification and vivification. So the last thing I want to talk about with you all today, um, we're not going to do thou shalt not lie, but let me just say, don't lie. Um, I, it goes way beyond that, but, I, but we're not going to be able to do you shall not lie. We're, but we're, I'd like to move toward the issues of, uh, that, the, that the Ten Commandments end with on our possessions. Ooh, buckle up. Do not steal. Do not covet. Stealing is taking that which does not belong to us. Coveting is the inordinate desire for something that is not mine by right, gift, or by law. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, uh, I think famously said toward the end of his ministry, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on covetousness. Who talks about that? Because we know our own hearts, right? What are these commandments about? These commandments are about stuff. They're about the material things and the challenges that stuff causes in the heart of the believer. Um, These commands sit right on top of this nexus of desire, even good and godly desire, and demand. Now this might be too pedestrian, maybe maybe too simplistic, but I think we all know the challenges that we live in, in this realm of possessions, um, desires, what it is that we want, what it is that we think can make us happy. Um, So maybe this is a little bit too simplistic, but I think there's something to this aphorism that when good desires turn into demands, the demands of our hearts, I must have this, that's that gray world where we enter into the space of idolatry, which ends up moving us into the space, and we all, and I don't want to go overly psychological with you here, but it takes us into the space of the division of our hearts. We're talking here about the dangers that we all live in and wrestle with, namely a divided heart. And you will not transcend that internal struggle before God and His grace with a divided heart until you breathe your last. I mean, the way that Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6 is you cannot serve God and, you remember this one? That's a weird thing. It's, it's, and again, it's, it's, it's actually somewhat stunning that Jesus uses the language of mammon. Mammon is understood as a personalized agent, a kind of demonic force whose aim in history is to wage war against the Creator. 
to distract us from our real joy. Um, it's, uh, it's parasitic and it's, and it's alien. Um, I wanted to read you, and by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a book blurb. You know, you take all these things with grains of salt, but this is a book that we actually listened to in the car as a family recently um, by Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming T Relationships in a Technological World. Not a bad book. Um, do you use, you use his tech, Techno-Wise family book? Yeah, that one. Um, we like to read those books and then just go on our merry way in our family. I'm, I'm joking. Um, he has a, a wonderful section in here on God and mammon. I wanted, I wanted to read this quote to you from Andy Crouch. Mammon wants something from us very much indeed. Because mammon is ultimately not at all just a thing. It's not even a system. But it's a will that's at work in history. And what it wants, above all, is to separate... Now, you got to sit on this for a second. To separate power from relationships. Abundance from dependence. And being from personhood. So, power from relationships... Abundance from the fact that we're dependent on one another and actual being from what it means to be a person. And there is no personhood apart from our relating to the other. A.W. Tozer, early 20th century preacher, speaks of the blessedness of being possessed by nothing. There is a power of mammon. Our material wealth and the blessings that we have in this world can take hold of us and similar things can be said about the ways in which our technologies have grabbed us as well. And this is why we're speaking right. I mean, this gets real personal for me too. Because we know our own hearts and how tempting it is to covet. I mean, think about the things that we might covet. <laughs> and the, Moses talks about it. Your, your neighbor's wife and his, his horse. We put that in his Ferrari. I don't know. But these are the things that we'll covet. Might covet someone else's marriage. It seems to operate better than yours. Might covet someone else's kids. They seem to maybe have achieved what you were hoping yours would have achieved. We might covet our neighbor's reputation. Or their prosperity. Or their promotion. Or the flip side of it would be what we might call that such diabolical and dangerous thing that can infect all of our hearts, schadenfreude. You know that famous German term? A sinister delight when someone that we're jealous of fails. Um, I had a talk with one of my sons about this three years ago uh, on his baseball team. Because there was a kid on that team that a lot of the guys thought who was starting that a lot of the guys on the bench didn't think he should be starting. And there was a little bit of internal glee among some of these boys whenever that guy would strike out. That's schadenfreude. So this is the battleground of grace. This is why we enter with John Donne into that famous prayer, Batter my heart 
three-person God. And it's why I think God calls us by His grace and His Spirit to live into a particular tension that we will never transcend. And I want to leave this with you, and then I'm going to stop talking. Number one, we see God's goodness to us in our possessions, in our things. Now notice this. We see it not necessarily in the thing, but through it. So this is not a kind of move to press us over against the blessing of material wealth. And I know the demographic of the Church of the Advent. right? I'm not naive. There's a lot of material wealth in our church. Abraham, if you follow the story of Abraham, it is remarkable. It's like Abraham can't get it straight. He even gave his wife to the Pharaoh to save getting killed. It's like, oh my goodness, Abraham, that's about as bad as it gets. And what happens on the way out of town, out of Dodge? He's got more horses and more cows and more possessions than he had when he came in. God, God blessed Abraham. So the point is, the blessing of material wealth is something that we are to see the goodness of the Creator through these things. It's His gift. By, by the way, uh, just as, as an aside, fascinating to me that the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, you know, not necessarily beach reading if you're looking for happy thoughts. All right, so if you want to call it a day, go ahead. Otherwise, let me just move to Q&A now. Um, I don't really remember where we were, um, but uh, Kohelet, well, yeah, read them. Um, I mean, the, the point of, of Kohelet is he links together um, both, and this is and for all of the all the challenges that he sees. He links together the fullness of life in two ways: fearing God and enjoying His good creation. This is fascinating. Those are the two things you're kind of left with. Fearing God and enjoying His good creation. Which is, I think, this tension that we're called to live into in light of the material wealth that God has given us. We recognize through these gifts God's goodness to us. And at the same time, we also recognize that we can never become ultimately beholden to them. That's why I wanted, I'll, I'll read this last quote and then, I'll, then, we'll, then we'll turn to Q&A. This is from um, Mylander's book, which I've recommended to you all. Um, and this is what he says on, on these two commandments. The Christian life is neither simply enjoyment of possessions nor renunciation of them. It, and this is what I think we're talking about this morning. It involves a constant movement between enjoyment and renunciation. Because created things are not goodness itself. Okay? All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Um, Want to ask any questions? <laughs> it's been a dramatic morning. <laughs> yes, sir. I mean, I, just, I, don't think, um, I, I don't think it can be any other way. In other words, we're not always cognitive of our, of our thinking process. I mean, and, that, and that's what's so remarkable about moral intuition. Um, and again, I, I don't, this is going to sound political. I don't, I don't really mean it to be. But in, in this sort of politically charged moment, when you've got really sort of some ugly things on all sides of the political spectrum, but don't think that, that certain ideologies that are present within, let's call it progressive culture today, aren't religious. 
We, we are made to be religious. There is a moral ethic at work. And now the question is, well, where's that coming from? Well, what's, what's, the, what's governing that? And I think that the answer is, and I, I'm, I'm very indebted to Jonathan. Oh gosh, I was corrected by Jen Green a few weeks ago on how I said this man's name. Height, not hate. Jonathan Height. His book, um, Our Righteous Mind, which Leland was kind enough to give me years ago. Um, Our Righteous Mind, where he says our moral intuition, and our, our moral um, ethics are more often than not governed by intuition and instinct. We've got, a, we've got a gut feeling about something. And then we move to make moral arguments to, to basically support our basic instinct. Well, the question is, how are people's guts formed? Right? And I think that's what I'm talking about within a certain kind of progressive ideology on so many of these issues of identity and sexuality that that's really kind of a gut thing. And don't think for a second that it's just a kind of intellectual discussion. These things are religiously and feverishly committed to. And that's, that's why I think for Christians committed to what you might consider to be a traditional biblical and Catholic ethic on these things, it's going to require two things, real live courage, real live courage, and real live intellectual humility. It's, it's that sort of Frank Limehouse, speaking the truth in love. It's going to require that kind of dynamic. And, I will, I, I, and I'm talking to myself about this a lot, that that's not something we achieve naturally either. We need God's work on us to be able to be courageous, to not, to not shy away from the truth, and at the same time, not overly angular um, about the ways in which we go about communicating it, doing it in love. That, that does not come naturally to us, especially when we feel committed to our principles. And I do. I'm sure you do as well. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the dynamic that we're, we're living into. But our, our, our culture is not religious, n- religiously neutral, e- even for those that claim to be. Th- this stuff has a religious element to it. The thing that scares me about so much of this ideology, frankly, is there's not a lot of room for grace and forgiveness. I mean, that's one of the beauties of the, of the Christian faith is we do believe that God can forgive us and restore us with our sins. I think, yes, it's a, it's a great point that you're making. And I think what that, if, if I'm hearing you right on this, John, I think what you're, you're leaning into is a, is a dynamic that recognizes, okay, we believe that the Word of God and its history of reception has an authority. It's norming in our moment. It's not always self-evident, though, what that norming looks like, right? Um, Exhibit A of this. Boy, this is a text we could spend a lot of time talking about. And it's been appealed to a lot among those within the church on various sides of whatever camps. Right? Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. We don't know what to do with these Gentile converts. This is, this is complicated. What do we do? Well, it's an appeal to the Spirit, number one. And it's also, at the same time, an appeal to the stability of God's Word. The so-called Noachide Laws. So this is basically what James says. Like, I, we're not sure what to do right now with this. We, we need to enter and to seek the mind of the Spirit collectively together because there are some complicated things that are on our front doorstep right now that we're not, we, don't have a, we don't have a playbook for this. But we do have a playbook for the alien sojourner in the land back in the book of Leviticus, which said blood and sexuality and idolatry are off limits. We good. Thank you, brother. Thanks for uh, hopping in on that. Thank you, sir. She's she's well, apparently. Um, 
So I think that's the, that's the dynamic that we're talking about here, that you, you lean on the stability of God's word, but you also recognize that your interpretation of that word is not the word, right? It's, it's, it doesn't carry the authority of the word. It requ- and that's that space that we enter into by God's, spirit, by God's spirit and his grace to say, and we trust God to do that work here. But when it's in clear contradistinction to the one to the other, then we're in alien territory. I think that's the point. But does that mean all of the ethical issues that face the church and complicated internecine church politics or how you deal with X, Y, and Z in your family, that all that's just equally self-evidently clear? You all live life. Everybody's like, you know it's not. It's hard. Um, but that's, I think, the space and the dynamic we're called into. Oh, that's beyond my pay grade. Um, I, I'd have to give some thought to that. I mean, I, I, I'm aware of the dynamic that you're talking about. And, and frankly, I've got a colleague um, in the law school at, at Samford who's um, sort of written a lot on the sort of the challenges, especially of international adoption. and. So I realize that there are some there are some issues that are at play here, but that that's outside of my pay grade. I, I have to give it some thought. Good question, though. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. And, that, and that's again, we're, we're actually you're personifying this agent. It's got a will that's at work. That's that's the point. And it's important to remember too that you know for the Apostle Paul, it's not money that's the root of all evil. I, I grew up hearing it quoted that way all the time. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's it's the it's avarice. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And I think those again we we like to collapse things that, but we need to keep some distinctions that are at play. Yes, ma'am, and you get the final question. No, I, I, actually, I was trying to set that up in the ter- in terms of the of the of the of the tension that we're living into between number one, seeing the goodness of God through His gifts to us, and at the same time, not becoming defined by them in such a way that we now become possessed by those things and see them as an end in themselves. And I'm glad you asked that question. So I didn't I didn't have the three things, although I can try to think of some. Um, but I but I but I appreciate that because that. That's where I would love to leave this, and then we'll go our way. Um, St. Augustine really has his fangs deep in me on this stuff. Um, I've been reading the Confessions again, um, and there's a new translation out that's well worth your time if you're looking for some good spiritual reading. Um, Augustine helps us think through the dynamic of what it is to love God above all else. He is the ultimate good. Now, there are those in the tradition who say, and if that's the case, then you just divest yourself of all wealth and go live in the desert. Well, that's one option in the tradition. The other option in the tradition, though, and what Augustine would leave you is, this is where you wrestle. You wrestle with the recognition that the goods that God has given you in this world are meant to be uses toward Him at the end. And that's the challenge and the dynamic that we're living in in this world, even our cell phones. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your kindness to us. Bless us, Lord, as we enter into this world. We don't have the personal resources to shape these things up. But we ask, O oh Father, that you would guide us by your word and your spirit. We do love you. We continue to pray for this woman that was in our midst today. And, Lord, we thank you for the, for the gift of doctors in our world that know how to step into situations. We're so grateful. We're so dependent, Lord, on you. Lord, I thank you for these friends who are here today. Let them have a great weekend with their families and their friends. And we give you the glory, Lord, for a nation like ours. In Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.